Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 187. I'm Sean. And I am Groot. And we are here to discuss Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 in celebration of the opening of Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind this Friday at Epcot Center. We have a lot of friends. We, we mentioned it on the show last week. We have a lot of friends that have written it. A lot of friends that have written it multiple times. They're saying it's amazing. And spoiler, Jackie and I are, are really starting to lack self-control. So I don't <laughs> think, not a promise, but I don't think it'll be very long until you hear our opinion of Cosmic Rewind. I mean, we're definitely no longer waiting on APs. It's just a matter of what makes the most sense to get us over to Epcot. But we are so excited to finally try it. And we are excited to talk about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 because this is one of the... And I'm not trying to bury my lead on on my final thoughts on the film, but this is one of the very few MCU films that was not necessarily polarizing when it came to sequels. I mean, how often do you see an origin story film that gets released, it's really, really good, and then the second movie comes out or the third movie comes out and it's either Iron Man 2 or 3 or it's Thor The Dark World. This is a film that, by and large, is universally recognized as a very good MCU sequel. I think it was just highly anticipated. There was no, oh my God, is it going to live up to the first one? I feel like people didn't really have to worry about this one. Right. And I guess the question at that point is, is it because of the soundtrack that you fall in love with it? Is it the characters? Is it James Gunn? What exactly is it that kind of rocks us in the cradle of comfort into believing that no matter what they do, we're in good hands. That, on top of many other things, is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms, ornaments, and personalized photo nightlights. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Hidden Mickey Supply Co. on Instagram and Etsy to stay up to date with all of the new releases. It's... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, before we even get into plot, I do want to get this out of the way now. Okay, okay soundtrack is better agreed i think the soundtrack in this film is better and you kind of knew we were in for a really strong soundtrack not because you were predisposed to it after the first film but i remember the first trailer we got for this and they used fox on the run and i just knew that we were in for something that was going to be totally extra no and that's not to say it like blows the first one out of the water because the first one is just so good but the way that the songs were utilized, the song choices, I just love this soundtrack even more. And I love the first one, but I think this one just has, just by a small margin, it's better. But I just wanted to get that out of the way now. And and I'll comment on that, and then we'll get into it. I think the other part is, in the first film, the soundtrack is amazing. And they tend they tended to go with a lot of better-known pop hits from the 70s. Yes. And here they went with hits that were, they were hits. People knew them, 
but they they tended to be more deep tracks and perhaps songs that are not as wildly or as widely recognized by the younger audience. So I think that for people of a certain age like us, not to make us sound old, but when you get into those deeper cuts, you tend to appreciate the soundtrack a little bit more. I think that also has to do with James Gunn really cut his teeth on the first one. People respected what he did. They trusted him with the vision. And I think he was able to push that envelope and get away with a little bit more because even certain songs, it's not even that you're getting into deeper cuts. Uh, geographically, there were songs that he grew up with that he chose that were just popular in the Chicago region that may not be as widely known, but they just work so well. And what impresses me the most is that he wrote them into this script. It wasn't like the movie was done and then they had to pick the songs. He purposely wrote them in. Uh, he knew that they were going to get them licensed and he was even playing them for the actors on set so that they could like really feel the scene even more. It's strong direction and very confident that he'd be able to get the uh, the licensing on them. Okay, it's 1980 in Missouri. We see Peter Quill's parents out for a drive when they go into the woods to see a plant that Peter's father has put into the soil. In present day, the Sovereign, uh, on the Sovereign, um, the Sovereign, so it's a planet, but it's also the people. Um, I guess it's the equivalent of Earth and Earthlings. Um, <laughs> we see the Guardians defeat an alien who is feeding on batteries that the Guardians were paid to retrieve by the Sovereign on the Sovereign. That is the last time it's going to get that confusing because moving forward when we discuss the Sovereign, we're talking about a people, not a planet. Correct. Let's dial it back and start with his parents. Sure. Uh, admittedly, I didn't put the two and two together. Still, even though they dropped all the hints in the first one, that this was Peter's father and and he was not of this planet. I just thought, oh, great, we're, we're getting a flashback and we're meeting the father now. Well, I mean, how many times, though, did they say in the first film that his mother fell in love with a spaceman and that he was only half Terran, and that his DNA was something rare that they hadn't yet seen. I think right away we knew we were getting Quill's parents. But that's just me. I Maybe I just picked up on it really fast, but I knew right away what we were walking into. Yeah, but spaceman could mean astronaut, you know? I, I mean, that was on first viewing of it. For as many hints as they dropped with Yondu, I'm going to bring you back to your father, I'm going to bring you back to your father on the first viewing of the first film you kept thinking that that meant Yandu didn't bring him back to earth even with them saying the the half blood and all of that that was totally lost on me the first time uh but regardless i think it's a great setup with the plants they planted the plants very early on yeah early enough where you have just enough time to forget about them by the time they come back into play later on in this film but just enough where you start to doubt the character that Kurt Russell is playing from the beginning of the film I mean we're doing a linear review here so we haven't really fleshed out the character yet but suffice to say if you've seen this movie before you know that when it comes to how you feel about ego it's a roller coaster ride um, and to me, at this point, the roller coaster is starting at the bottom of the hill. That's before we get the, you know, the chain lift all the way up. 
And from the get-go, at least for me, I was suspicious and didn't know if I could trust him or not. He planted a seed of doubt. Ha, ha, ha. Very good. (laughs) All right. So the sovereign battle. Yes. I love that this is where we meet our main characters again. I think it's a great setup that they're really a team working together now, and that's reinforced by everyone taking a beat during this monster battle to parent Groot. Oh, the toddler Groot, because I don't even know if you can call him baby Groot per se. Maybe not yet, but I mean, he is, for all intents and purposes, toddling around. He's walking, he's mobile, he's into everything. This is like terrible twos, Groot. It's a funny open, and it's fun with him, but I think the open for the first film is better. I do like seeing them work as a team, but I I like the open for the first film better. You're talking about as far as the intro to Star-Lord. Yes. Hmm... I I said it last week. I think that is, along with Deadpool, they're like a tie for me as far as the best introduction to a character. But I think in if you're just comparing these two films, I think this is a better open because it, it's so interesting that they chose to roll the credits through it as well, because this is like a big battle and it is an assignment that they've gotten. Um, but I think it's just hilarious how they play it out really behind Groot it's it's all happening in the background and it's basically the first trailer the first trailer was basically just this opening scene and I remember when we saw the film for the first time I was actually like really excited that we got the trailer out of the way in the first 10 minutes because it left the door open to what are we walking into next right they really didn't give much away in the way of plot Right. And Drax is a scene stealer in this open. Totally. <laughs> it's thinner on the inside. I'm going to cut it from the inside. And then the argument that Star-Lord and Gamora have is is hilarious, that it's the same thickness no matter which side you're on. Yeah. So the Guardians then bring the batteries to the Sovereign in exchange for Nebula, who was arrested for trying to steal said batteries. After Rocket pockets a few of the same batteries to sell for himself, the Sovereign attacked the Milano, causing a rift between Rocket and Quill. After a mystery man destroys all of the Sovereign crafts, the Milano makes a jump and crash lands on what I think is pronounced as Burhurt or Bearhurt. And when the mystery man arrives on the planet, he reveals himself to be Peter's father, Ego. Um... Let me ask you a question here. How do you feel about Rocket stealing the batteries? Um, I go back and forth. Well, first of all, what I don't like, and it bothers me every time that we watch it, is he didn't even wait until they were outside. There are clearly still people behind him, and he's like, you want some batteries? It's hilarious. The delivery is hilarious. And I feel like this is very much in character because even though they are taking on these assignments now, they are getting paid for doing the dirty work, so to speak. Um, They haven't completely left their old ways behind them. And I think that's the most true of Rocket. So what I think is the answer to your question is, Was it in character for Rocket? Yes. 
Uh, did we need this other than a plot device to have the Sovereign be this subplot throughout the rest of the film? Um, I think it's a great subplot because every time you think the Guardians get away, this this planet, this people keeps coming back right. at the most inopportune moments. Um, so I think story-wise, that part is great. But as far as how you get them there... Yeah, I mean, like, what else were you going to do? To me, he steals the batteries because, of course, he does. Right. Um, I didn't think that that was going to be the subplot for the entire film. I thought it was just going to be like, a oh, whole rocket's being rocket. Um, I didn't anticipate upon first viewing that it was going to be the subplot for the entire film. As a plot device, it's fine. Um, I think because the rest of the film gets so deep, it kind of feels like a weak plot device. But I think on its own, it's not that weak. I think it just seems that way when you compare it to everything else that's happening. Well, it's not just getting the Sovereign on their tail. It also does create kind of a tangled web with the Ravagers. Right. So I think that all works. But in the moment, what I don't love, as funny as it is when Drax is like, oh, they're after us because Rocket stole a bunch of batteries. Yeah. Um, That part is all funny, but I don't like that him and Quill are at odds immediately. I feel like that could have come more naturally once they realized that this is, or supposedly that this is Peter's father before Peter even believes him. And I feel like a more natural flow would have been that rocket gets jealous and rocket's afraid now we've got this chosen family we're good we're working together we're making money together we are a team what happens now if quill wants to abandon us and and his fear is what gave him the attitude and had him starting to take all of these digs at quill otherwise this this battle with the sovereign behind them their argument gets so drawn out yeah, so I want to put a pin in that for a minute because I have a note on that in a few minutes after we dissect a couple of more scenes. But you are on to the same thing that I have a note on, which is one of the few problems that I actually have in this film. So I just want to put a pin in that for just a second. Um, let's talk about the battle with the Sovereign, though. The fact I love the fact that the Sovereign are kind of in these like video game consoles. So brilliant. And I love the old school like 8-bit Nintendo sound effects. Um, and it actually makes sense that they would just send really avatars into battle so as to not lose any of their own people. It is interesting. I mean, that's what Tony tried to do in Iron Man 2, right? With yeah. the uh, with the Legion. Right. Uh, so it is interesting to see that put to use differently uh, and the idea is being recycled in another way. And that's not to say that Marvel is recycling it because they did it different enough where it doesn't feel like they're, they're, they're just regurgitating the same thing. I just appreciate that they're showing a, another race being like-minded with Tony and, and showing us their take on it. Uh, but I agree. I, I love the design I love the sound effects and it also serves to show how disillusioned the sovereign are because to them, they are playing a video game. They are rooting to take the Milano down when they really didn't do anything that bad. Well, stealing the batteries is a no, no. Uh, but as far as, you know, uh, Peter warns everyone that they're very easily offended. And I don't think 
they said anything that bad. Peter flirts with the high priestess, which is really funny when he's talking about the archaic ways of reproducing. Uh, I like that whole bit. Uh, but other than the batteries, I don't think it's enough to to send the entire fleet after the Guardians. Agreed. Um, but it serves as a plot device to get an introduction to Ego. And we meet Ego, and it's brief. Um, but from the moment you meet Ego, played by Kurt Russell, um, he, you could just tell he is Peter's father. Other than the fact that he tells us he is, it's just his general disposition upon his introduction where you know they are of the same blood. Where he's just surfing on top of his spaceship, yes. And just the way that he speaks about himself and the way he speaks to everybody else, in just in that brief interaction, you can tell that is his father. It's incredible casting. Yeah, it is. And Kurt Russell obviously has a very long history with Disney. On Contraxia, Yondu and the Ravengers are exiled by Stakar after being accused of trafficking kids. So Taserface and some of the other Ravagers begin to consider a mutiny. The Sovereign arrive and hire them to track down the Guardians. On Berhurt, Berhurt, whatever the hell you want to call it. Because I don't think they actually ever say the name of the planet. No, you just see the, the lower third come up yeah. so you know where they are, but... I don't recall them ever. They're not there for very long. They crash land there, but that's not Ego's planet. Ego's planet is Ego. Yeah. Well, on whatever you want to call it, Ego tells Peter that Yondu was hired to retrieve Peter after his mother died, but Yondu kept him to himself instead. He also invites them back to his planet so Peter can learn about his heritage and his purpose, which Peter reluctantly agrees to while he and Rocket continue to bicker. Let's talk about Contraxia for a moment here. The open on Yondu looking so empty is is it's just such a great character moment. It it's it's a dirty city. He's let's just call it what he what it is. He's, He's in, in a, a brothel, brothel with a robot. Um, and then she turns herself off like that. It, it's completely sets up that he's feeling very lonely. You really start to question what his deal is. Yes. It's a really great place to pick up where we left off with him specifically. And I like that they introduce, not just because we get Stallone in here, but I like the setup for there being consequences to his actions as far as always letting Peter go. And that it's not just the other ravages that are, that are after him. It's his own crew that is starting to question him, which is really tough. And you start to wonder whether or not he actually stole Peter. Yes. And and the the screenwriting and the direction here do a great job of pulling you in both directions. At the one hand, it's like, okay, it makes total sense that they would keep him because, as they keep saying, he was small and good for thieving. But then on the other hand, he is so soft on him and he's in such denial of it that you tr you're trying to figure out exactly what's going on here, what his deal is. Right. And did he always think of himself as a father figure? And was that why he wanted to keep him under his watch? Or it also started begging the question for me, did he know the entire time? Right. And that does get answered later on right. in the film. Um, but to pick up on where we left off before, the rift between Rocket and Quill 
just seems so rushed at this point, especially here, because, you know, they're having themselves a little bit of a measuring contest when it comes to who's piloting the Milano in the battle against the Sovereign. The attention to detail in that moment, as annoying as their fight is, I love how they show whose pilot is active because they do it with a sound effect, but they also show uh, it's like a green screen for when Rocket's in control or when Quill is in control. That level of detail just like blew me away. It's one, one of the many things that blows me away about this film. But it seems like it's so unmotivated. Like there's not even a throwaway line or dialogue about previous arguments that they've had, disagreements that they've had. There's nothing that would allude to the wheels coming off the wagon. It just seems like they both wanted to be in control of the Milano in the battle against the Sovereign. Both of them thought that they were right, and it ends with Rocket telling Orphan Boy to go leave with his daddy. You know what I'm saying? Like, right considering the full character arc that Rocket has in the first film and considering the fact that they are all looking at themselves as a found family, for him to be on the outs over this one isolated incident doesn't really seem to make sense. No, and I get that's why they took such care of setting up in the beginning. They go to battle against this huge space monster and they took great care with creating that harmony among them. You know, there's going to be a crack, you know, it's going to shatter. That's going to be the whole story throughout the movie. Uh, I figured it was probably going to be that the crew splits up at one point because now you've got such a large cast. What else are you going to do with them? So I'm fine with all of that, but you're right. I just don't know that this was the way to make it happen, especially when you have such an obvious out as far as, Rocket is going to get insecure about Peter starting to have a relationship with his father. Right. It was so easy. Yeah, it was. While en route to Ego's planet, Ego's companion Mantis exposes Peter's feelings for Gamora and explains that she helps put Ego's restless mind at ease so that he can sleep. On Berhurt, the Ravagers arrive and Rocket's toys help fight them off for a time, for a short period of time at least. Nebula, who has been in captivity with the Guardians, convinces Groot to set her free to help Rocket when they become too much for him to handle, but she instead helps the Ravagers capture him, but not before destroying the fin on Yondu's head, leaving him powerless after his crew decides to turn on him as well uh, due to his soft tone when it comes to Quill. So the mutiny is on. Um, you know, early on, upon her introduction, that Mantis's powers are going to play a huge role in this movie moving forward. Absolutely. Mantis and Drax, off the rip, are gold. Yeah, Pom Klementiev plays uh, Mantis, and... She's such a good sport about yes. everything. Uh, you know, and you hear later, Drax tells her that she's hideous, that she's ugly, and she's happy to be ugly. You know what I'm saying? In one of the better bits of dialogue, actually, later on in the film, uh, when it comes to Drax, um, but she's, but it's a good balance of comic relief 
but also questioning how much you can trust her early on. I'm actually going to disagree. Not as far as the comic relief, the dialogue. That's all wonderful. Uh, But as far as trusting her, I sort of got the feeling from the jump. I mean, you you know you can't trust Ego. There's just something... They they do a good enough job of playing it as too good to be true, where you do have that seed of doubt. Um, but as far as Mantis goes, I kind of always got the impression that she was enslaved and that she was too afraid to do anything about her situation. I mean, just in the way that she calls him master, you know that she doesn't have a lot of control over her own life. Um, but I think that they gave just enough away where you can see she's holding something back. Yeah, and obviously that gets played out later on in the film as she starts to grow that bond with Drax. Um, I love the scene with the Ravagers, though. With with the Ravagers and with uh, Rocket, where he's using all of his explosives and magnets and what you know whatever it is, lasers or force fields. I don't know exactly what he's using, but he's using it. The whole thing is hysterical. Oh, of course he had everything booby trapped, but I love that we got to see him handle this all on his own, especially as annoying as the setup was with Quill. It's good that they gave him that moment to show that he can take care of a situation without the rest of them. For as much as you want to see them working as a team he probably is the most capable, well, really a toss-up between him and Gamora of who can handle it on their own. Yeah, and I think my biggest disappointment in this film, and it has nothing to do with the filmmaking, is I thought that we could finally trust Nebula. I thought perhaps she has turned a new leaf. Perhaps she just wants to go after Thanos so badly that she knows that her way to Thanos is through the Guardians, especially after what happened with the Power Stone. And I could not have been more let down when she just went back to being old Nebula. As great as as old Nebula is, I was disappointed that I got lulled into that false sense of security. Well, they sort of do bring that full circle, though. Not to get too far ahead, but I think she does realize that when they have Yondu, Rocket, and Groot captured, and she's like, all right, that's enough killing for today. Mm-hmm. They could have taken the three of them out, but she did spare them. Before we move on to the next scene, I do just want to talk about one tiny conversation that ends up leading to the one of the best cameos I've ever seen. There's so much going on here. All of the main characters are broken into different groups. So there's a lot of cutting back and forth, obviously. But in this section, we do get a little beat with Gamora and Quill, where she reminds him that while drunk one night, he told her that he thought his dad was David Hasselhoff uh, from Knight Rider. And he used to fantasize about that's why his dad was never around because he was off making this television show or was it the television show or that he believed his dad really was I think it was just a, no it was just a story he would tell people uh well regardless she reminds Quill of that because he's still not 100% sure that he can trust ego and she's like what what if this is your Hasselhoff or or she says the name incorrectly but it's just a hilarious scene and the payoff is just better than we've ever could have imagined. Yeah, and then 
like most things in this movie, they go on to bicker about it later on. But we're going to get there. On Ego's planet, Ego uh, explains that there are millions of, that over millions of years, he grew from a spark to a celestial being and that he searched the galaxy for life, wanting to see what it was like to be human, and that he first experienced love with Peter's mother. He searched for Peter for years, and when he heard of the Earthman who held the Infinity Stone, he knew that it was him. This world building on Ego's planet is absolutely incredible. It is so beautiful. I think this is one of the most stunning things they have ever done in Marvel. Um, let me ask you, better better than Asgard? Because to me, that's like top tier. I think it's more beautiful than Asgard, but I don't know that it's better than Asgard. It's close. I think that in terms of like world building, just in terms of Disney in general, um, over the course of 187 episodes of Monorail Radio, I'd put it up there with Zootopia. I'd put it up there perhaps with Asgard. We're going to talk about Thor in the next couple of weeks. Um, so spoiler, we love the look of Asgard. Um <laughs> It's high up there. It ranks high. Yeah, for something that is completely CGI, as far as the, the exterior of the planet, right. it's stunning. I never thought that I would appreciate something so much that wasn't a set build. The inside, Ego's home is a set build. And what they did with these pods blows my mind every single time. I love how he's got the diorama of his life. Um, what's really interesting is that they actually had Kurt Russell do all of these little vignettes in the pods. I thought they were all CGI, but they had him do the character reference. Um, and then they would just, you know, put the, the thing over his face to make him look like a mannequin. Uh, but it's so cool. It is. Um, from top to bottom, the entire set and the entire world build is just outstanding. And the thing is, you know, we've we've hit the crest of the first drop of the roller coaster. Now we're coming down for our first big drop. You start trusting ego, so it 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 sets up the heartbreak later on in the movie because you do start to believe that perhaps what his what he's talking about is pure, that his intentions are pure here, and that he really was trying to find Peter the entire time. But I like that even though Peter believes it, he doesn't just accept it. And he does get angry with him right away for for not coming back for him. As he should. Yes. And demanding answers. Yes. As to why he left his mother as well. And obviously that all gets played out later on in the film. Yeah, but I like that they really went for it. And it wasn't just this big happy moment of, I finally have a dad. Let's start a relationship. Right. Now, with Yondu powerless and his allies killed, Taserface takes control of the Ravagers, which Rocket finds wildly entertaining. Nebula talks the Ravagers out of killing Yondu and Rocket so that she can collect 10% of the bounty on their heads and sets off to kill Gamora and Thanos. Can we just talk about Taserface? I want to talk about this whole scene. It's it's such a good scene. First of all, watching Yondu's men get picked off one by one is pretty heartbreaking because it's brutal. Sent, sent out into space to die. It's hard watching the first one, especially because the actor was on Sons of Anarchy. So yeah. it's somebody that you don't want to say goodbye to. But when they show all of those bodies floating in space, 
that's a really hard visual to swallow. But then you immediately have it lightened by Rocket making fun of Taserface, who I have a whole new appreciation for. I did not know this until I was watching the behind the scenes interviews. Uh, Taserface is played by Chris Sullivan, who is none other than Toby on This Is Us. Toby of Katobi, my This Is Us people, please shoot me an email or message on social media and let me know what you're thinking of the finale. The, that second to last episode was absolutely brutal and I'm excited for for the last one, but not to say goodbye to the show. But anyway, whole new appreciation for this character finding out who the actor is buried under all that makeup. I had no idea it was him. You enjoy This Is Us. <laughs> you all enjoy living a, a life of sadness and misery together. I like to watch television programs that kind of make me happy or keep me on the edge of my seat. Oh, it's so good. It's a, it's... I might make you watch the second to last no. ep- episode just to see like how good it was. No, I'm good. No, Thanks. it's so awesome. Nah, nah, I'm good. Thank you. Um, this whole thing, though, <laughs> it's an ongoing <laughs> gag that doesn't get Old. No, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is one of those jokes that every time they bring it up, it just works. And I'm glad that Marvel is in on the joke, because when he refers to himself as Taserface the first time, we all start laughing at like, what a stupid name. And no sooner do you stop laughing at it, does Rocket start laughing at it. So it's completely self-aware of how ridiculous it is. And I love the the conversation that pretty much puts everything to bed is Rocket tells him he'd rather die than wake up every morning thinking Taserface is a good name. I don't disagree if I'm being honest with you. So that's when Nebula shuts everything down because Yondu was next in line to go out that window. Um, so she pretty much calls the shots and now she's going to make her escape to go after Thanos. I love this little scene we get between her and Kraglin. I like that Kraglin is getting a bigger role and his character is becoming more important in this film. Um, He gives her another hand and he's like, don't worry about it. We have plenty. And he's just trying to make polite conversation. He's like, what are you going to do with the money? And then she breaks down exactly what Thanos has done to her, which I absolutely did not see coming i mean you you know just based on how she looks what has happened to her but i didn't expect to hear the whole story uh to to hear why she's harboring all this resentment towards gamora i just was not expecting this bomb drop at this point in the film i love that they flesh her story out yes and that it gives her a motivation other than just being a supervillain for the sake of being a supervillain the only thing I don't love and this is like really nitpicky minutia here they have a close-up on Nebula which works because we are getting deep into her emotion and we need to see her eyes but the problem is that play and her makeup is absolutely fantastic there's no doubt about it but because you're so close you see her eye plate moving a little bit and it doesn't look as metallic because it's kind of moving along with her cheek and it sort of takes me out of it every single time I would have sacrificed you know having to get this look into her soul into her eyes for a wider shot to not have that makeup get messed up and even I sit there and go "Ooh, that's nice like the hat (laughs) that (laughs) Craglin thought that she was going to buy (laughs) or a pretty necklace on Ego's planet, Ego explains that he had to return to his planet to keep his form alive and that his grief kept him from returning to 
Earth to see Peter's mother. He shows Peter how powerful the planet and the light within it can be, and he teaches Peter to harness the energy. Um, playing catch. It's such a great way to lure us all in. Because it's so on the nose, and it's fine. You give that a pass because it's it's not like he was like, hey, dad, and he, he pulls out a ball because he created this energy like it is the perfect thing to do with it. And it plays out exactly what Peter felt he was missing out on. So you kind of just buy into the hokiness. And with that, you're done. Stick a fork in it. You know, you totally buy into ego at this point. And the other thing that I love about it is if you follow the timeline in real time, it's the scene that gets everybody at the end of Field of Dreams, but Peter's never seen Field of Dreams because it came out after he got abducted. So for all of the pop culture references in the 80s that he can make, the one thing that he can't make a reference to, which is the most relevant thing in this film, is the one of the biggest pop culture sensations that he's never seen before. Nice catch there. Wow. So Mantis, meanwhile, starts to develop a bond with Drax, who opens up about his daughter. Taking sympathy on him, Mantis wants to tell him a secret, but Gamora interrupts and becomes suspicious of Ego. Um, I love here that Drax, as funny as he is, and as much of a scene-stealer as he is, that through Mantis, you see the weight that he silently carries. Yes, because they allude to it a little bit when he has that conversation with Quill in the beginning and he's trying to level with him when he's I think this is before Mantis outed Peter, but he starts to see the feelings that he has for Gamora and he says, you two aren't meant to be. She's not going to dance with you. Da, 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 da. And he's trying to level with Peter about how he felt about his wife. And it's funny because who's going to take Drax seriously enough to take romantic advice from him? Even though it makes his nether regions <laughs> engorged. <laughs> what a great line. It's so good. It's so Drax. Um, but I think that's it. You don't take that conversation seriously. Right. So now Drax has finally found someone who he can confide in. For as much as this is his family, they're still going to brush him off. Now he can actually open up to someone. Well, because she's literal. She's just like him. And she can read his feelings. He can't hide from her. That's, that's the most interesting thing about Mantis being an empath. I mean, it's such a unique power to have. But I think because Drax is so literal, he knows that there's absolutely nothing he's going to get away with when it comes to her. Correct. And I love this roller coaster ride that we're on here because we know Ego's now, we know Ego's a planet. We know he controls the planet. We know that Mantis wants to tell Drax something. She's unable to do it. So the, the internal conflict of who do you trust? How long can you trust them? When are they going to turn on us? The up and down really starts to take hold of you here. And it is completely balanced because now we cut back to Yondu, Rocket, and Groot in what is probably my favorite scene in this film, my favorite scene of any Guardians film. It might be my favorite Marvel scene ever, ever. Yeah, because Yondu tells Rocket that Quill was good for thieving, so he kept him from Ego. He and Rocket use Groot and Kraglin to help get Yondu a prototype fin, and the three of them escape uh, 
uh, captivity, killing the Ravagers who turned against them and set off to find the rest. Yandu is lying. We know he's lying. And we absolutely love it anyway when it comes to how he speaks about Quill. Yes, and that is so balanced, not just with the comedy, but he is also leveling with Rocket. The two of them together are just incredible. Yeah. But where he's lying about Quill, he is calling out everything that he sees in himself in Rocket. There are so many parallels yep. that I never even put together as far as them finding their pack and what happens when you start questioning your chosen family and going off and doing your own thing. The way that Rocket stole those batteries, Yondu says that he did something similar and he betrayed his kind for his own self-interest. And what you don't realize because he's laying into Rocket so hard is that he is trying to save Rocket from the same fate. Why? That all goes back to Quill because he does not want to hurt Quill or have Rocket hurt Quill the same way that he hurt the other Ravagers. Right, because... He was trafficking children for ego. The whole thing really is great. The bond that they form is great. Um, and now for a character, it's great because Yondu is fully prepared to answer for his sins no matter what the cost. Yeah. And then you get, in my opinion, the best use of a song yep. in this franchise, period, end of story. And to me, it is not even close. Uh, it's tough. Tough. It's a tough call with the funeral later on, but I don't, this is just such a, a great sequence. And I'm sitting here saying he's ready to pay for his sins with a mass murder. This song is so brilliant. The sequence for as, for as brutal as it is, they still shot it in such a way that it's it's beautiful where he's walking the catwalk and the arrow is just creating this neon glow and the bodies are falling like snow. It's just the whole thing is brilliant. This was actually the first scene that James Gunn wrote for this film. He knew he wanted to do it. And like, if you're going to put all your money on one scene and build a film around it, this was the one to do it with. I'm just curious. And I mean, I'm not into the source material. I'm wondering if, if this was all his own idea or if he had seen it in a comic and he was like, no, we're, we're going to do a Yondu bloodbath with the rest of these Ravagers. I'm not sure, but I'm thrilled with the end product. Even though we lose Taserface in the process. We get one last Taserface. We get one last laugh at Taserface. And we get what I had to go back and watch a second time. I thought that the blaster, one of the blasters that Rocket grabbed was a Han Solo blaster. It's not exact, but it's close. I thought for a second maybe Disney was like interweaving their universes where somewhere Rocket gets a Han Solo blaster. It's not exact, but they definitely pulled from the same influence. Whatever the design of the, of the of the blaster is so close that unless you're looking at screen grabs side by side, which I did just to confirm, <laughs> they look almost exactly the same. I was never going to pick up on that. Do you think that's a, a hat tip or a ripoff? Hat tip. I would I, agree I think, with that. I think that somewhere, some way, they're trying to weave some of these universes together. 
Um, I don't know that they're ever going to actually do it. That might be the closest we ever get. But star for trying. A plus for effort. Back on Ego's planet, Gamora tells Peter how suspicious she is of Ego, and Peter accuses her of being jealous of him, so she storms off in time to be attacked by Nebula, who has tracked them down. So the two battle again and again. Nebula tells Gamora that all she wanted was a sister, while all Gamora wanted was to win, all while Thanos continued to disassemble and reassemble Nebula. Finally, finally, a great scene between Nebula and Gamora that's more than just a battle. Yes. We needed this because their fights were great, but like I tongue-in-cheek say they fight again and again and again because over the course of two films, we have now seen this like four times, we needed substance. We needed something else. And Karen Gillum and uh, Zoe Zaldana do such a great job in this scene that they sell it so well. They really did. I think the credit goes to to Zoe Saldana in that instance because they had all of their fight choreography, obviously, but she would allow Karen Gillum to like go harder or like she would position her in a way that was like painful but not actually going to hurt her and she would just like grin and bear it in these battle scenes to make it more realistic yeah i mean that's that's dedication to your craft because you get hurt that could set the production back months if you legitimately get hurt well she did there's that one scene where nebula has her by the throat and zoe said choke me i can take it to make it more realistic good for her yeah let me ask you a question um rewinding just a moment here the um, argument between Gamora and Quill. Um, how did you feel about this scene? Because Gamora's the one that pushed him to go. Now she's the one that's pushing him to leave because, of course, she sees right through Ego. Peter can't. Um, but how did you feel about her being on both sides of the coin in terms of getting them to Ego and trying to pull them away from Ego? I think um, this is actually a really big character moment for her that sort of goes unnoticed. Uh, I love the unspoken thing and that they address their unspoken thing. Um, But I think where there's the conflict, obviously Peter has feelings for her that are more, you know, she's different than any other girl that gets stranded on his spaceship and he forgets about in the in the bottom compartment or whatever yeah (laughs) poor Barit um so we know that Gamora is different right we know that she's going to be the one to tame Peter for Gamora though I don't think it's a case of her not believing that Peter's the one for her I just think that she has seen too much and experienced so much loss and she's clearly got daddy issues I don't think that she ever considered herself even capable of loving someone. So I think her just trying to navigate having feelings and having to navigate that Peter addressed those feelings is what's confusing her. So I think that's where that push pull sort of comes from. And I think that she's sort of got the same concerns as Rocket as far as 
you know, we have our family. I can't up until this point, I can't stand the sight of my own sister, but you know, they, they had like a suicide pact together in the first film. Yeah. So I, I don't think that she wants to lose her chosen family. And I think that's what she's sort of wrestling with. Yeah. Uh, Ego explains to Peter that their purpose is to keep the light burning within the planet and that they will remain immortal and remake the universe and lead it to where it needs to go. Mantis, sensing something is wrong, wakes Drax to tell him that they were all in danger. Ego tells Peter that his desire to seek other life was more than what we initially thought and more than he had initially said. Gamora and Nebula, meanwhile, find a cove a cave i should say full of dead bodies and agree that they need to leave rocket and yondu realize that the two are one in the same while en route to save the guardians from ego ego tells peter about the expansion and how he uh, planted expansions of himself on thousands of planets and that ultimately everything must become ego and that he needed a celestial being, a second celestial being, and that Peter was the only one that worked, hence all of the bodies in the cave. That is such a great reveal. It is. like, And here's the thing. like, A lot happens here through dialogue. Not an awful lot is happening here through action, but a lot is happening through dialogue as we flesh out exactly what is going on with ego and what his true motivations were the entire time. Right. I mean, there's not really another way that you can do that. They are showing it in the pods, how he was going to all of these different planets and planting the flower, planting multiple kinds of seeds, if you will. Yeah. Um, but it, it, you're right. It is very wordy. And I think that's why the reveal of the bodies lands so hard. It, it was like a poltergeist land. Yeah. Because, Mantis confirms that the bodies are the rest of Ego's children who failed. Uh, so Gamora, Mantis, Drax, and Nebula decide to save Peter from Ego. Ego explains to Peter that he loved Peter's mother and that if he kept seeing her, he would never leave Earth and fulfill his purpose and that his light would burn out because he wouldn't have returned back to his planet to keep the light burning so that he planted the cancerous tumor in her head to prevent him from returning that is brutal my question for you do you buy it that he really loved her yes because of all of the things that he has said in this movie they're all proven to be lies in this moment so in this moment ego is doing nothing but telling the complete uncensored truth and I think that he was just that unhinged that he knew that if he didn't kill her, he would have gone back and failed his mission. And I will never forget, for as long as I live, the audible gasp. We saw this film opening night. I will never forget the air being sucked out of a movie theater. I've never had the air sucked out of a movie theater as harshly as it was when he says this to Quill. No, that was a complete and total shock. Didn't see it coming at all. Um, I, I remember that not in my stomach. And, and like you said, just collectively, the audience was just knocked on their feet by that one. Um, that's 
that that's just such an incredible thing that this movie is able to do though is have such heavy subject matter because when you think of the guardians you think of the absurd comedy yeah you don't necessarily remember these moments until you watch it again but like when you think about a scene like yondu killing off the rest of the ravagers or drax saying something like it made my nether regions engorge those are the things you're going to remember and it's just amazing that it's all jammed into one movie like this the balance just it, I'm in awe of it every single time. And I'll never forget, in, in the best way possible, I have never been so disappointed in a character. And I mean that in the best way possible. Yeah, he... I'm not going to say that he's a better villain than Ronan because Ronan was more just overtly horrible. But for a character like this to be kind to your face and have all of this going on that he has nurtured for years and years and years. Th this wasn't like an overnight take over the world that he decided to do. This has been so long Million, in the making. Literally millions of years of development, thousands of years planting these seeds on other planets. He knew what he was going to do. And you got to respect a villain like that who takes his time and is really that dedicated to it. Yeah. When Peter refuses to help Ego, Ego decides to use Peter as a battery to fulfill his destiny. He also destroys Peter's Walkman, which hurt us as much as it hurt Peter. Um, I want to rewind, though, for a minute and talk Cosmic about... Cosmic Rewind? Yeah, I want a Cosmic Rewind for a minute and talk about Yondu and Rocket. The moment when they realize they are one and the same and Rocket says, what kind of pair are we? Because this is happening as, because this is the weird thing, as like Ego is talking through his evil plan and then they have a scene where they flash to Rocket and Yondu and then go back to uh, Ego talking about his evil plan. So that scene kind of gets buried, but it's one of the strongest scenes in the movie. Right, because as they're cutting back and forth after they after he kills off the ravagers, uh they have to do 700 jumps. Yes. to get to Ego. Um and obviously they they're playing it up for comedy, but you did sort of have to give them some kind of obstacle that they're not immediately going to show up again. And then they have that moment as you said where they they decide they're going to bury the hatchet with each other and they're going to put their own issues aside to save Quill or save the galaxy, as they say. Yeah. Um, this whole thing, when it comes to uh, ego and how he starts to actually unleash his plan, I think it might be a, like, just in theory alone. I think it's almost as scary as the snapping. I would agree with that. And this is what I was talking about earlier, where there's so much happening. You forgot about all these plants. He exposes it in the beginning with Meredith Quill right then and there. And as soon as everything starts erupting on every single planet, I was like, oh, my God, because I had completely forgotten about it. Uh, and it just happened so fast. The way that it looks like blue goo just like bubbles over everything. Right. 
Yeah, it's really, really quick. And the the CGI here is also incredible. The way that it's overtaking everything, starting with the Dairy Queen, but also the way it freezes when they are able to keep Ego at bay for a second or two. Right, because when Ego's plan starts to work, Yondu and Rocket arrive and crash, crash their ship into Ego, temporarily halting his progress. Yondu tells Peter that he kept Peter from Ego because he feared Ego would kill him like the other kids, and that they then go to the center of the planet to kill Ego and save the galaxy because that's where his life force is. Meanwhile, the Sovereign arrive because we've forgotten about them too yep. um, in their continued pursuit of the Guardians and the batteries and inadvertently stop the Guardians from killing Ego when they damage the weapons on their ship. So Rocket uses the batteries to build a bomb that will destroy Ego and the planet and they use Groot to plant the bomb on Ego's core. It took almost in two entire films. There is Yondu. There he is. We've been really waiting for this. I've And I loved him in the first movie, and I loved what we were building to here. But we've been waiting for the fully fleshed out character to arrive, and he is finally here, and he did not disappoint. I 1,000% agree. There is so much happening here. Uh, but this is where all of those loose ends start to tie up things that you thought were just weak plot devices all come back into play like the sovereign showing up uh it, it's almost a twist because like you've completely forgotten about them but taser face gave them the coordinates yeah they, they are wonderfully annoying yes like they're annoying but for all of the right reasons and i love that yondu teams up with nebula to try and take them out because now nebula is back on our side uh they don't have the batteries anymore because Rocket took them for the bomb. So they have to power the ship to try and take out the Sovereign and they use Nebula as a human battery. And I love her. I love the moment that they give her when Yondu's like, this is going to hurt. And she goes, promises, promises. Yeah, it's a great scene because the ship is damaged to the point of not being able to escape. So they plug her in, as you just said. Uh, to give it enough power, the ship this is, to destroy the Sovereign. But Ego begins to fall apart around them, and they need to escape before the bomb goes off within six minutes. They have a six-minute window to get out. Ego begins to fight back and tries to convince Peter to go with the plan and warns that soon he will be all that is left. Because now... The rest of them have been overtaken by this blue goo, lava, rock formation, whatever it is that you want to call it. Um, they're all just getting stuck into it. So really, Ego is trying to play with Quill's emotions to make him feel like it's just going to be you and me anyway. So don't fight it because I'm already too strong. It's amazing the juxtaposition of Ego taking over other planets, but Ego is crumbling and the guardians are are falling into it even craglin is stuck in this battle now because he's got the escape pod that he had to bring to the surface to get them out and ego's trying to take the pod down with him i love also that this is ultimately all going to fall to baby groot and i wonder if this was part of the plan the whole time with not bringing him back as a fully fledged Groot right away and having him be the toddler because up until now it has sort of seemed like a plot device where every time 
you know, they're, they're in the thick of a battle or there's a high action sequence. Somebody's got to be worried about baby Groot. This is where it all comes to a head. This is where it all works because he's the only one small enough to fit in the core with that bomb. And you're not sure if he's going to hit the right button. So what seemed like a plot device actually really, really works here. Right. Um, and the other thing that happens is for a time, they're able to get Quill removed from Ego. They get him away from Ego. And this is where you get two of the best lines in the film. The first is with Yondu, the infamous a Mary Poppins, y'all. And that still lands every single time. Absolutely. The other character that I don't want to overlook in all of this is Mantis because she has the power to put her master to sleep and she's also been a big part of being able to keep him at bay. Yes, and that's the second best line here. Mantis, look out. (laughs) Where she gets hit with a rock or a piece of debris and it's far after she gets knocked out that Drax, who is again a scene stealer, looks down and goes, Mantis, look out. (laughs) It's hysterical. It's debris. It's the sovereign debris after they're all defeated because they, the sovereign had started, there's so much going on at once. Yeah, we were kind of getting ahead but to pull it back it's when the sovereign shoot down uh the pod that nebula and uh yondu are in right and quill is in there too so nebula lands she gets back down to to the rest of the guardians and yondu is floating down with quill but their ship has exploded and then they've also taken out the sovereign. So it's all the debris that's coming down. And that's why they were able to at least take the sovereign out because Mantis has been holding ego this entire time. Yeah. All right. We're going to move on here. Drax and Mantis get to Kraglin and Yondu's ship while the rest try to fight off ego, but fail um, time and time again, using Peter as a battery again, ego begins to take over thousands of planets throughout the universe because now his plan is restarted at Yandu's advice. Peter uses his heart over his mind to fight ego off, freeing the rest of the guardians and stopping ego's spread group. Meanwhile, plants the bomb on ego's core and starts the timer. Yandu sends rocket and Groot back to the ship so that he can save Quill. Because there's only one bodysuit that they can use that's going to give them oxygen to keep them alive. And, you know, it's that scene where Yondu tells Rocket and he goes, Rodent, I've never done anything good for anybody. And so I'm only taking the one. Let me have this. Just let me have this. Um, this the, the takeover, the continued takeover is very scary. Um, especially because you see they flash to Xandar, you see the Nova Corps trying to help and, and everyone is powerless. Everyone is powerless. But what I love here, and it's in theory, it should sound like such a stupid line on paper, but coming from Peter Quill, it's such an empowering line when he harnesses the energy and starts to fight back. The last thing he says to uh, to Ego before he unleashes a Pac-Man on him is, you killed my mom and squished my Walkman. 
it's such a good line. It really is because that Walkman was his connection to his mother. It meant everything to him. It's not just about the music. Those are songs that she curated for him because she wanted him to grow up with that music. She knew that it, it, it's actually when you think about it, like what a beautiful gift to leave behind to, to have someone get to know you on that level with songs that you like or songs that she purposely chose that she wanted you to hear. That's the thing. Kids of uh, kids nowadays and people of a certain age don't understand what what a big deal it was to make a mixtape for somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's sort of sad that it gets lost because making a playlist is nice, but it doesn't take the effort that making a mixtape took. Right. Um, so you're right for her to leave that as the lasting impression on him. And because it's such a part of his character and because he lost volume one. The whole thing, the whole thing just hurts. As much as the line as when Rocket tells Craglin, we got to get out of here, and Craglin's going to do what Rocket says because that's also a direct order from Yondu, and everybody starts fighting him on it because, remember, Quill and Yondu have not escaped yet, and they're asking him, what are you doing? And he says, I can only afford to lose one friend today. Ugh. Because Gamora is trying to go back. He tells Gamora, I can only... But he doesn't mean Quill. He knows Quill is getting out. He knows what Yondu is going to do, but he's the only one that knows it. Yeah. So as the rest escape on Yondu's ship, the bomb explodes, killing Ego, burning out the light, destroying the planet, and ending Peter's immortality. Yondu rescues Peter by giving him the only spacesuit they had while they fly into space. Peter is saved and Yondu dies a hero. Despite what he was told earlier, Yondu is given a proper Ravager funeral with all of the Ravagers attending while Rocket sheds a single tear. I shed multiple tears. Uh, Yeah, starting with probably it's it's the best line in this film i'll go so far as to say it's the best line in this movie or sorry in 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 the mcu um and i think that as we sit here 187 episodes in minimum top 5 might be top 3 single greatest lines in a film released by Disney, when Yondu says to Peter, he may have been your father, but he wasn't your daddy. I think it's only second to I Love You 3000. It's so good. The The whole moment, I mean, just the fact that he's going to make the sacrifice is pretty incredible. But the way that they play it out... Um, it even tracks right down to the amount of spacesuits and jetpacks that they have used. Yeah. Like they really they really did lose a bunch of them. So these are the last two left and when it dawns on Peter what's happening, it is so brutal. I mean, the guy just lost two fathers in one day. I'm so glad that you brought that up because I had that note that it wasn't until this latest viewing that I realized not only did he lose two fathers in a day, he loses them both within 5 minutes of each other. Yeah, as far as Disney killing off parents, Quill might have it the worst out of anyone. Yeah, for sure. Because he's lost fake parents, real parents. (laughs) He loses everybody. 
Yeah, any relationship he has in the future, if they're a relative, Gamora? don't get too attached. Gamora? Yeah. Oh, don't just stay away from Peter Quill. Don't drink the water, folks. I kind of, ooh. I want to do predictions for Guardians 3, but while we're on it, I am actually excited for like an unhinged Quill. Because this is going to be like Wanda, like you lost everything. How are you going to handle it now? Because he gets Gamora back. He does have her back. Mm, all right, let's put let's put a pin in that for because I do want to do predictions. So we'll we'll okay. hold for our Guardians three predictions. Uh, but no, I I completely agree with you that that when saying goodbye to Yondu, that's brutal. And just when you think that it can't get any worse, the Ravager funeral. He, even Yondu's send off, they get the the little trinket from mm-hmm. the first one that he likes from the collector. They send him off with it. The troll that Peter yes. sends him. Uh, just so many great Easter eggs. Such attention to detail. Um, and it's sad enough as it is. But then with the fireworks, they just twist that knife in pretty deep. I didn't think that I would ever cry during a Marvel film. Um, and this movie changed that. I saw this movie with you, and then I went and saw it again with my dad in theaters. And to the point where, like, you know, because you don't want you don't want it, as a man in your thirties to be crying at a comic book movie and have your father not understand why. And it has nothing to do with the fact that I'm seeing it with my dad. It's just that my dad is old school. Comic book movies don't make him cry. So like, I had to like partially excuse myself when I knew the scene was coming up. Uh, <laughs> It is, and I'm going to say this, fight me on it. Not only is it the best acted scene in the history of the MCU, the Ravager funeral is the best scene in MCU history, and it's better than Endgame. And I don't care what you tell me. The The feeling, and I've, I've waxed poetic on the show so many times, the feeling of being in the movie theater, seeing Endgame... On opening night, it was like being at a playoff game. And when Captain says, Avengers, assemble, and we were all so excited. It was great. It was uplifting. It was fun. We all went nuts. This is the best scene in the history of the MCU. It's For, for the best scene, it's really a toss-up between that and... Yondu taking out the rest of the Ravagers. And and part of it, in both instances, it is the song. The song is just so perfect in both cases. That's what really makes the scene. And I think in particular, the reason that it brings you to tears is because of the Cat Stevens song more than anything else. I think that's what puts it over the top. Um, because it's not just a song that we as the audience connect to because it is a popular song. We know the lyrics. We can appreciate the sentiment. Uh, but in this case, this was on the Zune, yes. which people of a certain age might not remember. This is what Yandu had put together for him. This is Yandu's playlist to Peter. This is what Yandu wanted to tell him. So it works twofold in that regard. Um, I agree with you as far as Endgame goes. From on your left to when the rest of the Avengers appear, there's no better uplifting feel-good scene. But this funeral, better than Tony's. Tony's is good because of the nostalgia of seeing the entire MCU cast and everybody that you've loved along the way 
in one space at one time. And it's sad and it's powerful, but all Pepper does is put the his uh, arc reactor in the water. Th- this is not quite the same thing. It's also because we anticipated that Tony was going to die for like six films. True. I didn't know. I didn't <laughs> no, think going in coming. we were going to lose Yondu. Um, but I, I definitely think this is the better funeral. Uh, and I was so surprised that they they ended on it. Really, that's that's it. That that's, is the yeah, end it, of the movie. It cuts to black. It doesn't even fade. It just cuts to black. And it's so groundbreaking because they've never done anything. I mean, like, yes, Endgame does it on the funeral, but like it was all building to that. This film builds in so many other ways. And there are so many other storylines that can pick up because you do get like five after the credit scenes. Um, I expected there to be like one more beat after this to set up the next film, whether it be that they they land on a planet like the Thor tie in or something. Um, I thought we were at least going to get that. I certainly wasn't expecting it to cut out here, but in a way, I'm glad it did because uh, it, it's just like the perfect ending. It is because I never thought that we'd feel that way about Yondu. Um, the film leaves you in a puddle, um, which is so different from any other film in the MCU. But it's also just that single tear is such a huge moment for Rocket. Yes. And he doesn't have to say a word because you could just see in the way that he's animated the look on his face. He knows that this is his fate if he doesn't clean it up. And he is now also... Because they, they they grew Groot back. Right. They can't grow Yondu back. And so it's, to him, a look in the mirror at his own reflection and wondering if he's done enough where he would get... Not that he necessarily would. I'm saying it you know, symbolically. Would he get the Ravager funeral? He knows that he's not getting it. Not yet. And I think that he just had such a respect for Yondu because nobody has ever bothered to call him out. And I think that's part of it, too, is that as close as he is with each of the other guardians, as close as he is with Groot, who's been his bodyguard and now his child almost, um, he had a relationship with Yondu unlike any other. And none of them would understand it. Right. Okay. final say, final review of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Do I really even need to say it? I absolutely love this movie. I think it is damn near perfect. And for me, I feel like I have been on such a journey with these Guardians films because, as you threw me under the bus last week, when we saw that first Guardians movie in theaters, I knew nothing about it going in. And to me... It was just another Marvel movie where they were all chasing after an orb. And I kind of felt like that was getting played out at this point because we had seen the Tesseract get chased down over how many different franchises. Because it happens in all of them. Right. Captain America does it. Obviously, Iron Man does it. Thor does it. So I was like, now we have another one. And not knowing what the context was as far as the Infinity Stones. And now we see where all of that goes. And now we see how it built and now we see how it all comes together. It gave me a whole new appreciation for it. And that was just the first one. I wasn't expecting to love the first one as much as I did. My first impression of it was completely wrong. And I certainly 
wasn't expecting to fall completely head over heels in love with this group, which is what this second film did for me. Uh, I went from respecting the first one, the more I understood it to enjoying the appearances of the guardians in other films in the franchise to just absolutely loving the guardians. But it, it, it took this movie to really do that for me. This is one of my favorites in the MCU. Um, like I said, it's damn near perfect. I don't, I don't know what else to say. I just absolutely love it. My, my only, my only gripe with it is I, I hate that we're going to have to do guardians three without Yondu. Yeah. Um, I don't have much to, to add at this point. Um, to me, it's near perfect. I don't love how rushed and petty the feud between Krill and uh, between uh, Quill and Rocket seems. Um, I don't love how they flesh that out. I feel like there's more there. One or two quick throwaway lines could have really cleaned it up. Um, but with that being said. It is not only one of the rare films that is better than the original when it comes to sequels, but I will go so far as to say that I think, and this might spoil some reviews coming up, I think this is my favorite film in the MCU. I I love Captain America. I love the first Iron Man film. I love Endgame. I love Black Panther. I love Ragnarok. I think this is this is this is at the top of my list. It's definitely up there. I mean, I almost feel like it's not fair to compare it to Endgame because of what was involved in building to that, and the payoff was so great. Um, but I think this is the one I probably rewatched the most. That I'll just put it on, you know, I, I don't mean this offensively, I'll put it on in the background. Like, if nothing else is on, I just want this on, uh, just because I love it so much. Let's talk predictions for Guardians 3, if any. I, I don't know that I want to make any, because I don't really know. Admittedly, I am not well-versed enough in the MCU, uh, MCU source material to really make a prediction that's not going to make me seem foolish. Um, and I think I kind of want to wait until the next Thor movie comes out because we only have to wait about another month or so at this point, a little over a month at time of this recording. True. Um, knowing that they're playing such a role in that film, I almost feel like we're getting an extension of this in that so I don't know that I want to make a prediction just yet. Well, here's what we do know. We do know that the Sovereign are coming back. Um, whether that's in Thor or whether that's in Volume 3, obviously TBD. Um, if, I, if I had to bet right now, I would say Volume 3. Um, and that's going to be your big bad because where else are they going to go? Right. Um. I hate to say this. I I think we're going to lose another character because they're not afraid to do it. They sort of do it with Groot in the first one. We don't think he's going to make it. We don't know that he can be regrown. So they they have no issues killing him off. They kill off Yondu. Uh, 
we do lose Gamora, even though to your point, we get her back. But like, do we get to keep her? Because that is time traveling Gamora. And I think we really we've been saying it and saying it. I think we really need to sit down and watch What If uh, because she is in that. Um, but I don't know that that's going to be for good. And I hate to say it. I, I think if we're going to lose anybody, it might be Rocket. I think if we lose a character, we're losing Quill. Really? Yes. That's my guess. Now, again, don't shoot the messenger. I'm making a guess based on not reading comic books. So calm down. Don't get angry if you know the source material. I don't. It's just a prediction. Regardless of any of this, though, I am just so thankful that James Gunn is back on to direct the third one. Because if you're not familiar, he got in some trouble. We didn't know if he was going to come back as the director. And what I love the most about that story is that his team stood behind him. The actors used their power and said that they would not come back to do the third one if he wasn't directing it. And and I think they're right for doing that, you know, to to believe in him. I love the loyalty that they showed him. But moreover, I don't think you capture this same magic without him. Agreed. He is as important and integral to the Guardians of the Galaxy as any one of these actors is. Right. So I love that they band together uh to, to get him back directing. Yeah, and the court of public stupidity at one point wanted Chris Pratt out too, and that wasn't ever going to happen. Good Lord. Um, uh, what, Star-Lord. Yeah, what, what, a, what a world we live in. What a day and age where everybody gets a second chance as long as they're like-minded. Um, but I'm glad, though, that both of them have kind of navigated through those choppy waters um, and that we're getting both of them back because James Gunn did the right thing and, and he came out and said, and of course he's going to because Chris Pratt stood behind him. So, of course, he's going to come out and stand behind Chris Pratt and so did everybody else involved. So I'm glad that we are keeping the band together for this final film, which if I'm being honest about, I'm not looking forward to because I'm not ready to let them go. That's going to be the second time we're crying a Guardians movie in theaters. Because if you believe what Dave Batista, you know, if you're reading between the lines, and I'm not trying to put words in his mouth, but what I read is it's over, it's done, we all know it, they're moving on. I'm not ready to let them go. No. But unfortunately we're going to have to and then we'll get into the next phase of the mcu but we want to hear from you our friends to know what you have to say about guardians of the galaxy volume two you can let us know on twitter instagram and facebook at monoreal radio or you can email us monoreal radio at gmail.com news of the week is coming up but first a quick break hey everyone this is brian down here in south florida i'm about two hours south of disney and when it comes to planning vacations jackie's the way to go I have a quick story for you. When it came to booking my family vacation for my two-year-old daughter and my wife, you know, like everybody, I immediately went to the internet, started scouting prices, compiling lists, and uh, building my perfect vacation at Disney. Just out of curiosity, I reached out to Jackie. She mentioned she was uh, booking vacations for many people. So I gave her my uh, list, my itinerary. She looked it over, and when she came back to me, she gave me her recommendations in regards to the parks. However, she also had new pricing associated with it. Um, I've learned that going on my own doesn't necessarily mean that I'll be getting the best pricing. Jackie was able to beat 
the majority of the pricing within my list and saving me a ton of money. But she has the insight and the connections to do so. On top of that, it was stress-free. So all my vacations in the future are gonna be through her because I don't have to think about it. She plans it, I give her some information in regards to what I wanna do, what my plans are for that week when I go visit Disney and she'll make it happen and create the itinerary for me. She's a market expert. Myself, I go into a park, I immediately hop on the next line, I get a few fast passes, and at the end of the day, I don't accomplish everything like I would want to. She advised on which rides to attack first, which restaurants I should schedule on what day, and how to properly allocate my time to maximize my vacation. It was an amazing process. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Way to go, Monoreal. Keep it going. So if you are interested in completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News this week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet Designs. If you are looking for home decor that is Disney-inspired... Kelly has you covered. Plus, listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Be sure to see all of the products that she has and all of the services that she has to offer at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. That's Karma, the letter N, KismetDesigns.com. We got a fresh look at Thor Love and Thunder this week. Isn't it funny how we waited on this trailer for so long and now I feel like there's seven of them? You, yeah, like I feel like we had very little to go off of. We got the Sweet Child of Mine trailer, which everybody got excited about, and then we kind of waited a little bit longer and now it's just one after another after another. And it like, I don't know. I don't know if this is like a new day and age with social media, but I remember back in the day, you would get trailer drops kind of consistently to build up to a film over the course of many months. And I feel like nowadays you get a trailer, then you sit for six months and you get another trailer and you sit for another three months and then you get five teasers. Yeah, I'm fine with the multiple trailers. It's how they always did it where, you know, I mean, that's marketing, right? They're trying to create hype around the film and show you something different each time. Or like if you have a film coming out, you know, in the earlier part of a year, they'd give you like a big Thanksgiving or Christmas trailer. Right. And then you'd get the Super Bowl one. And then presumably your film is coming out in either March or April or it's the Memorial Day film. In this case, it's coming out in July. We've been getting completely unpredictable trailers. And to me, I don't know that you're really going to top the Sweet Child of Mine one. I think that that was just such a good trailer overall. I'm excited that we got to see speaking lines from Lady Thor finally. Yes. So we get a little bit more um, of a picture of what what kind of role she's going to play. Uh, and then we got... Um, a first look at our villain, which is crazy exciting. Yeah, Christian Bale as Gore the God Butcher. He looks he looks menacing. He does. And from what I'm seeing, there's a little bit of discourse because it doesn't look true to the source material. Who cares? He looks awesome. I mean, maybe it's just me because I'm not attached to Thor the way that some people are. Uh, but he's just so cool looking. Who, who cares? If you got a good looking villain, what what's... What's the difference if it looks like the source material or not? I know. People got over Grimace Simpson when it came to Thanos. I think they're going <laughs> to learn to get over this. And I think for the ladies, why are we talking about Christian Bale when we see Chris Hemsworth's blurred rear end in this trailer? 
And hey, I guess there's something in it for everybody, isn't there? <laughs> um, other big news, really exciting. Festival of the Lion King in its full traditional version is returning to Disney's Animal Kingdom on July the 16th. Now, we had went and seen the show um, on our last Disney trip this past November, and um, the show was good, but you could tell the tumbling monkeys were missing. There, there was something missing. I was happy to have it. I was just happy to see something Festival of the Lion King related. Um, but as much fun as that show was, it doesn't touch the full version. I'm so happy it's back. Yeah, I mean, this was November 2021 that we saw it. And if it was your only time seeing it, I think you're going to enjoy it. But you don't know what you're missing. Yes. Knowing what there is to compare it to, it just wasn't the same. Like, they didn't hype the crowd the same way. In the... No, I'm lying. No, the that one cast, cast member was member. incredible. <laughs> well, he was the single man hype team. But they didn't go around to section by section. Like, okay, you're going to be the elephants. You're going to be the giraffes yeah. and, and get the audience participation going. And I understand why we were still trying to be mindful of COVID at that point. Um and in Can You Feel the Love Tonight, they didn't do the aerial part of it. They just danced. Yeah. That was probably the most noticeable issue to me. Um, but regardless, I'm I'm happy to have it back in full capacity. And maybe we can get an AP at some point and then we can go see it again. Maybe. And maybe someday we'll see Fantasmic again. Because once Fantasmic gets announced, at that point, basically everything has returned. We just need that, and we need a full-time nighttime parade at the Magic Kingdom, and all will be right with the world. But we want to hear from you about the new Thor trailer. How do you feel about Christian Bale? Are you excited that Festival of the Lion King is coming back? We want to hear from you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to like us on that social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok at Monoreal Radio. We love hearing from you. You can email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on Verbal or your podcast platform of choice. And for links to everything related to the show, it is online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.